Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Julianne Burke on the show. Burke is the creator of the new Armenian cooking show called Jules Armenian Kitchen. Originally from Fresno, she moved to the East Coast to work as a consultant, but when family circumstances brought her home, she made it her mission to preserve the culinary traditions of her family and community. This episode was a lot of fun to produce because we were able to just gush about food, cooking, Armenian culture, and more. Please enjoy our conversation, and Baker will take us there. Fresno's best. Julianne, where do you like to eat in Fresno? And I want to add a caveat before we start, because typically I leave this question pretty open-ended. I want you to specifically not include Armenian restaurants in Fresno, because we're going to talk about that later. So to rephrase the question, what's a non-Armenian food place that you like to eat in Fresno? I love the limelight on West Shaw. It's a classic neighborhood, comfy, old school place with awesome food. What do you mean by old school? What what strikes well, old school about you? Uh, that well, place? not the food. I think the food is really innovative and fresh, but the vibe just feels really like a classic Fresno vibe. You know, they even have a room called the Fig Room where you can have banquets. So to me, that just you know, it's really just got a nice old feeling. But I really, really like their surf and turf appetizer. So if anyone's listening that hasn't tried it, I highly recommend it. Yeah, and I I was talking about this with somebody. Uh, for those of us that moved, because I moved here from Southern California, and there's there's this kind of concept in places and you know East Coast where you've been or uh, San Francisco or L.A. where I've lived, there's these like really nice neighborhood restaurants that are just kind of doing their own thing and they're like a fixture in the neighborhood and that you know in a kind of a our sprawled suburban context that. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, so we have some things, but we don't really have that. And I do miss that. Now there's just a few places in town where people go and they drive really far. But I, I do miss like stumbling out of my apartment in San Francisco and walking to the neighborhood Nouveau American place and just, you know, having a, a wonderful meal and just kind of waddling one block back to my house. But, you know, that's not everyone something, not something everyone can afford to have because it is, it comes at a premium, right? If you live in a big city, that's one of one of the perks. Um, is there a neighborhood restaurant that you miss from places you've lived? Yeah, not where I've lived, but so when I, you're right, I lived on the East coast for about 25 years, 20, 25 years. And I had a good friend from New York city and we would always just jump on the bus from Boston where we lived or Connecticut when I lived there. And we would go to her mom's house in New York city and just right on West 72nd street, this really great little trattoria that, you know, no one's, mm -hmm. you know, it's not a destination, right. To go to a little trattoria, you know, West end and 72nd. And yet they had the best food. So mm -hmm. I'd always look forward to going there. Yes. Uh, so I know exactly what you're talking about. And yeah, limelight gives me that feeling though. It's right in, you know, it's right in my neighborhood. My husband and I will go for date night and we don't feel worried about leaving our daughter who's 12. Cause it's like literally two minutes away. So mm -hmm. Just, That's but it would have a really nice, really nice, delicious meal. Maybe run into some neighbors, and it's always really nice. Hmm. One of the criticisms I receive on this podcast by people that listen is that they think I talk about food a lot, 
which I think is a wonderful criticism because it's one I'm willing to accept. Um, but what's great about this uh, episode is that there's no holds bar on like uh, the ability to just kind of gush about food and cuisine. And, you know, I, the, the people that think that food is just some kind of, you know, food as fuel or uh, food as just something that we think about secondarily, I, I disagree. And I think food is one of the cruxes of culture. It is one of the center points because it's how we nourish ourselves. It's how we share community. There's so many aspects to food and we're going to dig into a few things. And I kind of want to take like a 20,000 foot view. And I'm going to ask you a funny question to start, which will kind of lead us back to where we're going to eventually go, which is your show. Uh, why do you think people like to watch other people cook and eat food? Psychologically, why do you think? That's a great question. I haven't ever thought about that. Because I love, I just, I love, I mean, for example, uh, there's a show on uh, Netflix called The Chef Show. Um, yes. And it's John Favreau and Rochelle. Yes. And they just eat and cook. And, you know, like whenever I'm having my periodic bouts of like insomnia, where I just like my mind is going too fast that I can't sleep. I just watch that and I'm so soothed and I go right. And it's like, a, like I'm a baby. Like I just like fall asleep with the phone in my hand. But do you have any theories as to why people like watching food? Well, as you were talking, I developed one. So let, let okay, me try. Okay, all right, fire away. <laughs> okay, so this theory connects to <clears throat> the way we entertain. Whenever people come to my house, no matter how hard I try to get them into the living room while I'm finishing the meal, everyone always is in the kitchen with me while I'm finishing the meal. No matter how hard I try, even if we stage it, you know, properly, and my husband's like, "Oh, come on over here and have a drink," and gets them into no they make their way into the kitchen and then they stay there they stay in the kitchen all night long and we're like oh we have this lovely home please go for it no we want to hang out in the kitchen with you and i think even when i'm washing dishes and so i think that there's some i think there's just something communal about the kitchen you know the kitchen is where we um we gather it's where our whole life plays out right and it's this place where all of these influences come to us um you know you 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 know you open a cookbook and you're influenced by all the theories and values of your favorite food network star that may have written it or you're watching the news and it's coming into you through the kitchen i mean I, to me it's just i think it has to do with that's where life plays out is over food and and together by you know by the kitchen by the hearth you know so so maybe that has something to do with it I don't know. Yeah. Well, not to get kind of snobby literary, but there's a reason Proust chose a cookie as a metaphor of transporting back to childhood. Food is kind of has this like perennial presence in our lives. And what we think about oftentimes is is that, but really it's a it's a signifier to a relationship in, in a lot of ways. Let's, let's get a little bit closer to where we're going to talk about more was what does a food for you tell you about a culture? So when you go and go to like, for example, Fasika, the Ethiopian restaurant in Fresno that everyone loves, and I love too, yeah. and you eat the food, you're kind of learning about a culture. From your perspective, what does food teach us about culture? Oh, it can tell us so much. And there's a reason why foodways exists, right? As a as a study, as a sociology form, right? It's because foodways tell us so much about culture. To me, I think that like if you want to take Armenian food, for example, mm -hmm. one, you know, one of the things that's interesting about Armenian food is that when you read cookbooks, Armenian cookbooks, mm -hmm. you'll never find one that serves four. You will not find a recipe that serves four. You, it doesn't exist. I can't find it. I, I urge someone to show mm -hmm. me. And as you can see behind me in my office, I have 
so many books and many of them are cookbooks. And I even have uh, an Armenian cookbook right here in front of me. And the minimum you're going to see is serves eight, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you're more likely to be like serves 12 to 16. And it's because what Armenian food teaches us about our culture is, is that we, we like to gather, we like mm -hmm. to be together, even if it's just on the spot, you know, we, we've got, if, and if we are together, we're going to make a party because just being together is a reason to celebrate with being with our people visiting and maybe we even visited with them last week or the day before but it's still it's just a reason you know to get together and be together so i think to us you know like food talks a lot about how our community thrives in togetherness and um, and then that extends into so many other ways i mean when my mom who's been recently in the hospital when we take pictures from the hospital like there are six of us in the room you know <laughs> it's not like one person takes a shift and then the other person, oh no, no, we're all together giving the peace sign, like thumbs up, like here we are. And we do everything like that. And mm. sometimes to people who aren't part of our culture, like my husband, it can be exasperating. And they're like, really? Um, <laughs> we have to all be together again? I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to us, to us, like, uh, and I won't speak for your husband because I don't know anything about him, but for us waspy people, with like our small, tiny nuclear families where everyone lives in different places that can, I can understand that point of view. And I, I think going back to the food thing too, like, for example, I really enjoy cooking tagines, like North African food and like stews and things. One thing that I learn about the culture and when I serve these things to people is that they say, oh my gosh, the spices and flavors. And I think that for me shows you that they Oftentimes meat is something that's rarely cooked. And so you put tons and tons of flavor into it. Whereas American food, sometimes it's just like a giant steak. And that shows you like the wealth and the, the kind of indiscriminate use of meat uh, that you're willing to just, you know, put some salt and pepper on a huge piece of meat and serve it to somebody. So it can also, I think in some ways, teach you about the economics and like how, how, how food is used in, in some ways. Well, that's a great point. Yeah. You know, um, going back to Proust's cookie, you, you think about if you think about a similar but probably more pop culture reference, you know, the movie Ratatouille, mm -hmm. yep. where the food critic, you know, when he's looking, going around Paris, looking for perspective. Yeah. yeah and yeah. then the perspective that he was actually seeking was his own memory of his own childhood. Mm. So I think the other role that food serves in a culture is to preserve our memory. Mm our cultural memory. And, and that's a big reason why I'm, I think, doing what I'm doing is because I'm off to constantly get that, get my dad to have that look in his eyes that that food critic and Ratatouille had in his eyes when he tasted, you know, Remy's Ratatouille and, you know, his pen dropped to the floor dramatically. And all of a sudden he was transported back to his childhood. That's what I'm trying to do. And, you know, I often miss the boat, you know, I'll give something to my dad and I'll be looking for it, you know, that memory look. And he's like, oh, Oh, this is very lovely. You're like, come on, come yeah. on. I, I, I've been digging for, I'm mining for your memories here. Come on, buddy. He's yeah, like, no, I, nothing I get that. like my great grandma's. No, not, but it's really, really mm. nice. I'm like, oh, mm. man. <laughs> That's all we can do is try at the end of the day. Let's talk about a kind of defining Ar Armenian food. So as you know, Armenia is surrounded by kind of big countries uh, that have strong uh, poles in their culinary world. And I know that Armenian food has been influenced by lots of, you know, Persian uh, food, for example. And there's the influence of Russia, of course, which is a, a complicated thing we don't have to get into. But how, and then of course, the fact that most 
there's more Armenians not living in Armenia than living there today. And so obviously food changes based on place. Um, so the question I guess is, how do we define Armenian food if it's evolving in all of these different places around the world where essentially the diaspora has settled and they're getting influence? So for example, talking to someone that had recently gone to Yerevan and then they go to Glendale and eat food, it's very different because it's in place. So for you, how do you think about defining something that is changing and moving in a lot of different directions? That's a great question. I really like talking to you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I don't think about defining it. I actually think that defining it is um, is a dangerous thing. And it's only going to put us in a world of finger pointing. Mm. Of, you know, no, that's not right. <laughs> We're, we can go. We can definitely go there as a culture. And so, yeah. and actually that's the one place I don't want to go. And so you're, you're absolutely correct. You know, the diaspora is so large. So it's, it's, it's taken on so many different forms and, What's more interesting to me than defining it is to understand characteristics of how it is here and what not just the characteristics of how Armenian food is enjoyed here, but the stories behind what made it so. To me, that's what's really interesting. Mm. I mean, and but, you know, just to give you, you know, not to totally issue your question. I'll, I'll no, let me no, fire you, away. But let me give you some kind of an answer. Okay. Um, just for the sake of it, I'll throw something out there and then we'll see what people say. So, but I think, I think one way that I think about it is that it's a food that is integrated with nature. I think about it that way. And, and maybe other people would say, well, lots of cultural foods are integrated with nature to which I would say, great, you know, so maybe it's not a spe specifier, but again, I'm not trying to specify it. I'm just trying to describe it. And so I think what's really interesting to me is because I love art and I think of food as art also. And I think about, okay, what's your artistic medium, right? Like I happen to like books and, but I like film and books probably more than I like, for example, poetry and paintings. But nonetheless, I, I always thinking about what's the media, right? And mm -hmm. so for me, what's interesting is that nature is the media for so much of our food. Like in the spring, when the grape leaves are, are really big, we take them off and then we wrap them around uh, the rice and the meat, you know, and then bake it that way. And, you know, in the fall, like right now, when we have these gorgeous gourds and peppers and all these different things, zucchinis big, you know, we fill them. And, and just stuff them again with our rice or in the case of like, I'm about to make gapa, sorry, gapama, which is a stuffed pumpkin. So we'll just, you know, empty it out and fill it with rice and honey and dried fruits and, and spices and make the most beautiful dish. To me, that kind of integration with nature is what's so, it's such an interesting characteristic. And I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that so many of us here are farmers or, you know, really connected to the land. I don't know. I mean, they're just theories, but just taking a stab at it. Well, and I think I, I do a lot of work on local history. And I think about for the horrible genocide that happened in the 1840s to the 1870s in California, there were all these very different and unique indigenous groups up and down California that each had their own unique way of doing things. And so I think I think you're right. You know, obviously it was kind of a loaded question to get you to shoot it down in many ways. Um, <laughs> because when food becomes fun is when you go deeper into specific places. And just in the same way that if someone from Europe was like, what's American cuisine? 
I would say which America, you know, or yeah. which part, right? And obviously there's some things that are through lines for sure, but there is specifics based on place. So I guess my follow-up then would be what what is maybe a California or even Fresno version of Armenian cuisine that you would define and maybe a little closer. So what makes Armenian cuisine in our neck of the woods distinct? One thing we do is we, we, what we talk about as dolma is different from what people talk about as dolma in other parts of the world. So maybe we can talk about that for a second. Okay. You know, dolmades in Greek is, you know, what people usually think of, which are the rolled grape leaves. Yeah. But we call those yalanchi, which is actually a Turkish word for lie. And it, it, the lie means because there's no meat in it as they're vegetarian. So when you take a bite of it, you're like, it's a lie. <laughs> but um, and then we call it sarma when it's when the grape leaves are, you know, have the meat in it and it's served warm, then it's called sarma. But we also call sarma when it's cabbage. So it gets complicated. But what we call dolm, I love language, by the way. And so I, this whole thing, I just... So I just love it. It makes me crazy, but I love it. So what we call dolma is a very, very traditional here would be to take a um, either a green pepper or perhaps a tomato. We really like it with our tomatoes here because we have such amazing, big, great tomatoes here, right? Like they probably can't stuff tomatoes in other places like we can here. Mm. And they might, and they might kind of blanch at our our tomato dolmas here and be like that's not right but of course to us it is because we have amazing access so you would take um a tomato and or a pepper and then you would hollow it out and then you would cook your rice either in advance or if you want to cook slower you could do it with your meat and you'd mix it with you know a spiced we would do a beef mixture or a little bit of lamb if you want but i think we do use a lot of beef here and probably because we have so many you know there's a lot of cattle here, a lot of dairy. So we were just drawing on what's available to us and mm. we just add some vegetables to it. We would stuff it. And then there's different ways to cook it. You know, some of us would cook it. Um, it's interesting because I always saw it baked. And so to me, that was then you had, you had to bake it. But the first person who came on my cooking show, my little baby cooking show, that's a pilot. Um, she did it on the stove stovetop. And I was like, what? Mm. And she did it on the stovetop and she did it in and she cooked it in kind of a tomato based, almost like a tomato broth, like a tomato soup that she kept basting it with. And then what we would do is we'd serve it with lavash on the side, of mm. course, and we would let we would wet our lavash. So I don't know if everybody wets their lavash, but we do, you know, because we like it a little softer. And then, of course, we would put some yogurt on top. And then if you were um, my dad, you would be very disappointed if that yogurt didn't have fresh garlic and cucumbers and mint in it. <laughs> so maybe that would be like a, a, like a, for us, like a Sunday dinner, like your mm. basic Sunday dinner. So we're going to jump into my favorite section. It's called overrated versus underrated. I'm going to throw a bunch of food items, concepts, people to you. And you just tell me whether you think they're over or underrated and why. All right. So we'll start with one of the staples for me, lamajun, over or underrated 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 why the world needs to because the world needs to know how good it is <laughs> yeah explain it for people who have never had it okay so imagine a really nice uh fine piece of dough it could be more on the flaky side if you want to be at some bakeries at other bakeries you might be more hardier like a naan 
just depends mm-hmm. on the bakery. Um, and it's rolled into a circle. And then you've got a filling, but it's really a topping. People call it like a pizza. If you yeah, that's what I've heard. Filling. Armenian pizza. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so you've got the topping and then, you know, the spice mixture with which the topping is made. Again, the topping can have beef, it can have beef and lamb, but the spice mixture is really important. Some people some people argue that pomegranate molasses makes it so great. Other people don't use pomegranate molasses. So there's some interesting variations depending on where you live. And then it's, so it's padded on and then it's baked. And what's so great about it is that you can grab this, you know, and fold it up almost like a taco or, you know, like a pizza slice and just eat it for lunch. Mm-hmm. Or you could heat it up and you could take your lettuce and, you know, chop it really, really fine and put a, a lot of vinegar, uh, strong red wine vinegar and oil and mix your salad. And then you put salad in the middle of it and then fold it over like a taco. So now you have more, you know, of a balanced meal. So it's basically, it's very versatile. It's absolutely delicious. It keeps well in your freezer. So for example, I never don't have a dozen on hand in my freezer ready because you never know when someone's going to show up per my earlier comments about family gathering. I've got to be able to throw down. Is there a size? Because I've had different sizes. I've had more personal pizza sizes and then larger. Is there a size that you would say is appropriate for you in terms of the size of one of them? Yes, I've got my ruler out and I'm taking a look at it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay, so yes, some people make them smaller. I dislike smaller ones. For me, appropriate size is going to be like an eight inch round. Okay. Or like the, like the, like the diameter would be four inches. That's how I like it. Yeah. And then you've, you've probably seen Fresno's La Majune Trail, right? So that's yes. the, the series I did on Instagram. And we're going to continue that because we want to make sure that we can find any good La Majune. No stone should be left unturned in terms of understanding the great options for Fresno's La Majune. I think I've had most of my La Majune at uh, Kebab City. I think that's oh. been my place and I really enjoy theirs, but I'm, I would love to just spend a Saturday and expand my stomach somehow. All right, next one. And I'm going to mispronounce his last name because I always do. Uh, the chef, Yotam Olingi. Olingi. Oh, gosh. Underrated. Okay. Tell, tell, tell us why. Well, it's just because I think not enough people know about him. You know, I think his cookbooks are so simple and basic and... You know, anyone who can teach you how to cook like that with just you know basic, simple ingredients and put beautiful things together, I think he should be more in mainstream culture. What have you learned from him? You know, how to make a good couscous. Mm-hmm. And, you know, couscous, there's so much you can do with it. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing to me. You know, I mean, I have my kind of standard couscous, but I think he does a lot of really nice things with couscous. Also, um, the Barefoot Contessa does some nice couscous recipes but i I definitely my take my biggest takeaway from yotam and it's changed how i do meze in my house which Mm. is that ice water added to hummus uh, as you're making it to to improve the texture that was because i think most people the hummus they buy is bean paste you know it's been transported in some ice truck and it has this like thick, almost grainy texture. And that's not hummus, at least in that part of the world. I guess it's our American version of hummus, but it's just not the same and not as enjoyable. All right, next one. And this is something that I've been watching because it's very interesting to me. Armenian wines over underrated. Hmm. I don't think I've had enough of them to make hmm. an educated comment on that. But I'll say this, the ones I've had have been good, but I, I really haven't. I'm not really a big wine drinkers. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's an interesting world. And I, you know, having lived in California most of my life, I mean, we have, 
we have our wine country, but I'm always curious about these new regions, you know, in part because of climate change that are able to grow grapes and export their wine. And I'm always curious. And so I've been recently, I've been just kind of looking into it and it's pretty amazing growing world. Next one, another uh, Armenian staple, Monty, over underrated. (laughs) I'm going to say overrated. I'm not a fan. (laughs) Yes, that's what I've heard. So why is it overrated? Not only in your eyes, but a lot of people's eyes. I don't know. I, I, I mean, people. I mean, I don't know that it is overrated in other people's eyes because if other people like it, it's not overrated, right? Yeah, but I have talked like to it. quite a few people. They're like, it's overrated for sure. <laughs> so why? What is it, and why is it overrated to you? Okay, I call it the Armenian ravioli for mm. people who aren't familiar with Monty. And so imagine kind of like a pasta shell, and then it's filled with a beef or a meat mixture, and then it's cooked in a soup. And, or it's it's cooked and then it's presented in a soup. And then uh, there can be various toppings on top. Um, and so that's what it is. To me, I don't generally enjoy the flavoring. And I can't, I don't even know what it is that's creating this particular flavor that I don't like, but there's something in it that, that really sets me off. However, I'm going to make an exception to that. And I'm going to make a plug for um, Shayla Vartanian's Monty. Shayla is the daughter of Jimmy, the late Jimmy Minos, International Furniture. Her Monty is delicious. And what she does is that she actually uses, and this is a nod to the multiculturalism in Fresno that you were interested in exploring vis-a-vis food. She takes egg roll wrappers and uses that. Yes, she's brilliant. She uses the egg roll wrappers as her outside. She makes a very modest, simple filling, right? This filling is not going to offend your taste buds in any way. She fills it up. She bakes them. And then she puts it in a simple soup of just chicken broth and a little vermicelli. Um, You know, she squeezes a lot of lemon on top, some yogurt, and then she makes like a nice uh, kind of paprika oil sauce. There's a demo on my Instagram page of Shayla making it. And um, it's, it's, she can turn what other people call like a really like complicated thing into a weeknight dinner that actually tastes really simple and good and hearty. So she's going to be my exception. (laughs) Yeah, I'll need some of that to go. All right, <laughs> next one. Using PowerPoint in meetings, over or underrated? <laughs> I mean, I guess it's overrated in the sense that it's overdone, right? It's oversaturated. We miss the opportunity to just talk to one another or do my favorite thing, which is whiteboard. Although mm-hmm. I know you can whiteboard using Miro and these other things. But but at the same time, it's so, it's the language by which it's the media by which people understand one another in a business context. And so there's kind of no getting away from it. So what I like to do instead with my PowerPoints is just make them extremely simple, like very little on a page, kind of a real simple, clean, modern presentation, and and just maybe even just two words or three words <laughs> just to get you thinking. Mm. So I'll use it, but I'll try to use it a little bit differently just so that we don't get stuck in a PowerPoint kind of sleep. Yeah. And this is kind of a nod towards your other life consultant. Um, And I'm thinking about this recently um, in part because I'm reading the book Working Backwards. um, And it's the Amazon book about like uh, how Amazon works uh, institutionally and structurally. And they're famous for not allowing PowerPoint to be used in senior team meetings. um, And you have to write out a narrative of your pitch in six page, you know, single space. And then that you show up to the meeting, you deliver your six pages. And then basically the senior executive team reads them over and then has a discussion after. And so it's gotten me thinking a lot about how I use PowerPoint and 
uh, the benefits of narrative and the benefits of visuals. And one of their things is we don't want to make a decision about a business proposal or an idea when the charisma of the presenter could cloud our vision of the effect efficacy of the ideas. So mm -hmm. interesting, interesting thing that I think about, um, but mm -hmm. I just want to throw it at you. Mm -hmm. All right, next one. Um, and this one's an either or. You're at a restaurant. Do you order hummus or baba ganoush? Go. Baba. Okay. Sell people on baba because most people don't. Most well, people order that hummus. Okay, they don't well, even I, know what it is. Why are you going to order hummus when you can make it at home? I can give you, I've got a 10 minute recipe for hummus um, on my website and it's absolutely fine and it uses water. So there you go. It's great consistency. You're going to love it. So you can do that at home for 10 minutes. Don't, what you want to order is baba. And the reason you want to order baba is because mm -hmm. not everyone has time to mm -hmm. take an eggplant and smoke it over a grill to get it really flavored properly and then mash it and do all the things. You know what I mean? That's a process. Yes. And so that's what you want to pay for at the restaurant. Mm -hmm. Next one, the restaurant made, M-A-Y-D. Oh, underrated. Everyone should be going there. And there should always be a line out the door because it's delicious. I love it. It is definitely one of my favorite. I don't want to say restaurants because I, I, you know, I want to be careful about that term. It, it is a restaurant. It's my favorite to go place is what I will say. Like if I just want to get, if I just need like, it's been a hell of a day and I just am home and I'm just looking at like my chicken thighs that are defrosting and I'm just pissed <laughs> just looking at them. Like I just, I just go on the maid app and just order. And it's uh, the greatest just bail you out uh, thing that there is. Uh, next one, baklava or nazuk, which would you choose? Baklava. Okay. Why baklava? I think we say paklava. I think oh, paklava. Okay. I think so. I think so. I think that you'll find the difference um, discussed in one of my episodes is that paklava is Armenian. We use a simple syrup. Baklava is Greek and they use honey. Okay. And the reason I would choose it is because it is heaven, mm. utter heaven. Those layers of phyllo dough and those those walnuts, and then you know, little lemon juice in there. Mm. Yeah. How do you how do you avoid uh, having soggy phyllo dough? Okay. So again, this is also covered extensively by Laura Falland. Her maiden name is Caribbean on episode three of Jules Armenian Kitchen. So the trick is that I learned from her is that when you're assembling it, one part needs to be hot and the other part needs to be cold. So as you're, let's say that you've, you've, you've layered it. So you've put the phyllo dough down, you put the butter in between, you've layered it, you've got the walnuts, everything's there. It's baked. When it comes out of the oven, because it's hot, the sauce that you use or the syrup that you use cannot also be hot or you will have soggy. Oh, the I sauce see. has to be previously made and refrigerated. So the cold meets the hot and you get the sizzle. And when you get this here, the sizzle, you know that it's going to work. It's not going to be soggy. The other tip that you want to do is don't cover it. Do not cover it. Resist the urge to cover it because covering it kind of lends itself to that sogginess. Whereas the oxid that you know, oh, yeah, yeah. continues to get oxidized. That keeps it a little bit flakier. You want the balance of the cold and the hot. Right. You know, kind of finishing it. That makes sense. Okay, just a few more. The restaurant Hummus Republic. 
I love Hamas Republic. Okay. It is underrated. More people need to go there. And I'm thrilled to say that um, during the pandemic, I actually helped them uh, navigate uh, capital for their capital expansion uh, through the Valley Small Business Development Center. And so Chloe and Stephen are just wonderful. And they're super sweet people. Oh my gosh. Like perfect entrepreneurs for the city. They're so great. Hamas Republic is fantastic too. Great Mm -hmm. value. If I get a bowl, and you know that if you get like half falafel and half chicken, for example, you're going to get three falafel plus a bunch of lemon chicken and a pita bread and many toppings. And I eat that half for lunch and then the other half for dinner. So, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe I'm spending, you know, over $10 for my lunch, but it's going to last me. So yes. I, I think it's great value. I think it's divine. And if I, I worked awesome. downtown, I would definitely, it would be twice a week. No doubt. No doubt. Oh, yeah. I would just waddle over and yeah, for sure. I'm here. I'm looking at, I'm looking at the building right now. <laughs> All right. Uh, next one. Okay. Uh, living in Cambridge, over underrated. Well, it depends on what time of year. <laughs> okay. Okay. Not in during the- winter. <laughs> I, I loved living in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I think it's probably underrated because it is the most charming, wonderful, stimulating place a person can live. That said, when you're from Fresno, California, and it is snowing and blizzarding, and you have finals and you are completely freaked out, it is not pleasant. And I've had some really hard moments in Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> Does the is the juice worth the squeeze? Are the nice times living in the Northeast worth those horrible whiteout days? I think so. Hmm. I think so. I would still be there, you know, except my mom got sick and my mom and dad need us, but yeah, I'd still be there. I love the East Coast. I mean, I love it here too, but there's something about the pace on the East Coast, you know? Mm. And you're just like, um, you're going up and down the Northeast corridor on Amtrak and you know, you've got meetings and doing what you're in, you know, and you're in Boston, and then all of a sudden you're in New York, and then all of a sudden you're in Philly, and then you're in DC, mm. and like everyone's moving fast and you've got your heels on and you're like, woohoo. It just, you know, it just feels good. Yes. There's it. definitely an energy. I wouldn't, you know, so like I'm, I'm at work right now, so I'm wearing a shirt and a tie, but I'm also wearing a bomber jacket and Birkenstocks, um, <laughs> which if I was in the East coast, like I wouldn't get away with that. You know, like there's just some formalities that I, 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 I like less, but there is a lot of fun and it is nice to have trains that work and things that are so close together for sure. Oh yeah. Uh, and great cinema. I mean, independent theaters everywhere, independent bookstores, great food. Mm. Absolutely. All right. So let's, we're going to jump out of that section now. I, we're going to kind of, we got two more sections before we close up. I want you to kind of talk about the impetus for the show, where it came from, what it was like developing it, um, and then what you have learned uh, with some of the people that you've either interviewed or you've had do uh, culinary demos. Okay. So the impetus for the show is really interesting. As I told you, I was you know, living on the East Coast, perfectly happy, consulting, came home to help take care of my mom and dad. And I was looking for when I came home to Fresno, okay, I'm a I'm a boomeranger, right? I've boomeranged back. What can I do to, you know, add something to uh, the community? And I thought, oh, it's got to be something around Armenian food because I'm back here. I have 24-7 access to really good food and the people who know how to cook it. So I started exploring. And what I realized was that a lot of the people who know how to make the throwdown meals that like our great grandparents made who came from Armenia are gone and they haven't passed on their knowledge to their kids. And so a lot of recipes are dead. They're just dead. And I found that very sad because I wanted to learn how to make certain things. People are like, Oh no, honey, nobody makes, nobody knows how to make that. And so I thought, well, we got to find a way to preserve this. 
So I started studying with people, writing down recipes, documenting them, putting them on a website. And guess what? Nobody, nobody came, nobody visited. So I started to understand why, why is it that no one's as interested in this as I am? And then I realized, oh, it's because you can't, you can't show cooking techniques verbally. I mean, you can't show them in written form. I mean, you have to actually show them. Mm -hmm. And the fact that everyone's always doing food videos, it's like, duh. So then I realized, oh, we want to make this appealing and actually transfer this knowledge. We actually show it. And so I started doing Facebook lives and they did pretty well. People like during the pandemic, people were watching and engaging. So I thought, okay, this is a thing. Maybe I could do something with this, maybe make it a show. So that was the impetus. Developing it, what I learned is that (laughs) if you're going to make a TV show and you've never made a TV show before, you should definitely um, not know how hard it is going into it or you'll Mm. never do it. (laughs) Right. Um, I have never, I have never, I think that I was really interested in the content, which is the food, but I had no concept of what it takes to actually direct something, you know, and produce it and tell a story visually. This, this is something I had not done. You know, I can write the six page papers that the people like the consultants give to the people at Amazon who then pitch their CEOs. I can do that all day long, but this is different for me. It's really not in my skip, my wheelhouse. So developing what I learned is that I need to find a really great production team. I need to um, define the director within myself because I can't afford to hire one. <laughs> so I have to find within myself all of these people that I didn't know lived there. And I have to develop these talents if I want to keep moving forward. And I've also found from the people um, that, I've, that have taught me to cook that, you know, this is a great extension of me doing what I do best, which is being a student. You know, a lot of people have a cooking show and they're like, I'm the teacher and I'm not the teacher. My shtick is I'm in a learning position because I really don't know. And it's just a wonderful place to be. So I've had some amazing teachers and I hope to have many more. I hope anyone listening who knows how to make something really good is going to call and say, I'm going to show you come to my kitchen. Mm. And um, and I hope I just can keep learning, you know, because that's and sharing, you know, this wonderful history and tradition. What are two. Armenian recipes that most people haven't heard of that they should add to their culinary repertoire? Zhazhik, which is the simple uh, sauce I was telling you about. It's like a tzatziki. So it's the, you know, you take the madzun, which is the non-fat, you know, whole fat, uh, sorry, whole fat yogurt, and you add uh, the crushed garlic and you'll add cucumbers that have been, you know, peeled and seeded. And you'll add mint and stir it together. That's so good. I mean, anyone can make that. You're going to put it on top of anything. You're going to love it. Yeah, just throw some throw some chicken thighs on the barbecue and then drizzle that over the top. I'm sure it's just... What's and, one more? Okay, so and then the other one I want to tell you is gapama. G-H-A-P-A-M-A. And I have a recipe on the Alliance for California Traditional Arts website for Gapama. So I'll send that to you and maybe you can share it because we've written it up in two ways. We've written up traditional Gapama, which is a stuffed pumpkin. It's the one I was telling you about Mm. with the, um, you know, the rice and the honey and the dried apricots, the prunes, the almonds. I mean, it's just a little bit of cinnamon. I mean, this is just the perfect side dish. But what's really cool about my gapama recipe is that, so again, keeping with the tradition I told you about, a whole pumpkin is what's made. And that serves a lot of people. Like who's going to make that for four people? You're not, right? It's not a recipe for four people, but we wanted to create one. So with my cooking mentor, Zaruhi Bedrosian, we made 
um, and Tess Kitchen, a pie pumpkin version of Gapama. So you can go like Trader Joe's and get one of their little pie pumpkins. And we've got a version of it that fits in that. So you can cut it in four pieces and serve it at a dinner party. And it's perfect. Um, it's actually like really for the modern kitchen. So I'm really excited about um, about Gapama, especially this time of year with pumpkins so plentiful. Um, you can cook them, you know, stuff them, cook them, eat them and enjoy. Wonderful. All right, let's close up with book recommendations. This is my favorite part of the show. So what are two or three books that uh, you've either read recently or are important to you? All right, so I'm going to talk about Philip Pullman, my favorite author of the okay. moment. Oh, he may be, uh, I can't say he's my favorite of all time, but he's, so Philip Pullman wrote His Dark Materials, which is the trilogy that HBO made. It's kind of, for those who aren't familiar with His Dark Materials, think of it as kind of a Harry Potter, C.S. Lewis type of thing. It's a fantasy that really crosses, it's written for youth, but it really crosses over for adults. So His Dark Materials, and then I absolutely am obsessed with the the subsequent trilogy that he's in the process of writing called The Book of Dust. And the reason I like it is because it is by far some of the best storytelling on the planet. I mean, it's that good. And his use of language is so precise that you just can't help but fall in love. What I'm reading right now by Philip Pullman is called uh, Demon Voices, D-A-E-M-O-N Voices. And it's a, it's a series of lectures that he's given on stories and storytelling. <laughs> yes, and I don't normally make a nonfiction recommendation because I'm like escapist fiction girl, especially as I don't read, I watch TV. So like I lose myself in a book. So it's very rare that I'd make a nonfiction recommendation, but it relates to what we've been discussing, which is why I want to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's really cool about this book for anyone who's trying to do what I'm doing, which is to teach themselves how to, have a creative project. <laughs> um, this is a great book to read because he analyzes kind of the mechanics of storytelling mm-hmm. through paintings, through poetry, through cinema, and of course, through traditional narrative, which is his domain. And he just has these really simple, basic takeaways that help you work in a way that can actually capture your audience. Because I think the problem with trying to tell a story or do any kind of cultural foodways or, or preservation is that, yeah, it's, it's interesting to you, but if you don't make it interesting to the audience, they're going to walk away and remember that they need to do some weeding <laughs> or wash their car. <laughs> and so how do you make it? It's not just about you know preserving this culture or these recipes. It's about packaging up in a way that people actually really want to consume it. And so that's through the art of great storytelling. And that's why this book, Demon Voices, is right by my bedstand at all times. Well, so let's close by talking about where people can find your stuff and where can they, uh, where will the show be found? Uh, Where can they find the early episodes and what's next for you? Okay. So the early episodes are going to be up on YouTube. Um, So I'll have a YouTube channel that's um, for Jules Armenian Kitchen, J-U-L apostrophe S or Jules, J-U-L-S Armenian Kitchen. Uh, We don't have it up yet, but it should be there in a couple of weeks. And then there's also a website, www.julesarmenianKitchen.com. That'll have the food blog where all the recipes will live. And then, of course, there's all kinds of information that you can see on social media where I'm cooking or I'm going visiting the farmer's market. And that's at Jules Armenian Kitchen. So that's um, where you can find or learn about the project. What's next for me is that after we get everything up um, this month, later this month, I'm going to enter a period of feedback seeking. So I'm going to be really looking for people to give critical feedback 
and you know they will. <laughs> and so I'll just be, you know, really welcoming, you know, what folks have to say in terms of do they do they what do they want to see going forward? Are they interested in this? Are they not? And then and then we'll kind of decide if we want to keep moving forward with it. But I hope we do. Um, I hope that you know we'll be able to at least have enough support to offset some of the production costs because I've been you know investing my not only my time but also my money in it for the last uh, a last bit save for two sponsors that I really wanted to take take a moment and acknowledge and one is OK Produce. So I really appreciate them for helping me offset um, some of the production costs of the show and for spending some time helping me tell the story of the produce that, quote unquote, as Brady Matoyan says, the intel inside all those dishes that we love. And then I also really want to thank Gary Coca-Cola of Coca-Cola Broadcasting for also helping me offset some costs. And Gary's going to have me on Monterey tonight in uh, November, and and we're going to show that one of the episodes there. And I think it's also going to stream in Fresno. So really appreciate them for getting behind it at the early stage. Cause I think if you, the, the benefit of having some backers at the early stage is that you feel accountability to them. Mm. But when you want to quit, you actually can't because you've accepted someone's support. Yes. <laughs> so there's something... need to be totally uh, kind of, yeah. Having that or just completely unhinged like myself or it's just <laughs> it's just totally, you know, just like a steamroller in the middle of the desert, just going in whatever direction. Well, I'm looking forward to watching and I appreciate the work you're doing so much and keeping those uh, traditions and that culture alive in us as, you know, our parents' generation starts to kind of enter that age um, where, you know, it's, it's, it's inevitable and it's what's happening. And the best thing we can do is, is learn about them, their story and the things that they cook and share it with our kids and future generations. So I appreciate the work you're doing. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Wow. Talking to you was really fun. I hope that we can do it again sometime, even if it's not recorded. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. As always, you can support this podcast by either leaving us a rating and review or making a financial contribution at our Patreon page is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best. We'll see you next time.